What's going on, family? This is your boy DJ Preach, the founder of the Life Show Radio. And I see that you're doing great things right now by keeping it locked here on the MTMV Sports Podcast. Yeah, I better be talking about the Carolina Panthers. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the Know Your Personnel Podcast. We are on all major podcast apps. You can also find us on MTMV Sports Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to both stations that you never miss an episode. Please remember to leave us a five-star rating. Download and share this episode with a friend so we can continue to grow the game. I'm very excited for our next guest. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the KYP Podcast. I'm very excited for our next guest. Uh, Coach Scott Waterman is the head coach of the Academy of Art University of San Francisco. Uh, Scott, thank you very much for joining us today. Nick, it's a pleasure to be on here. And uh, obviously, I have a lot of respect for you since now you're the head coach of uh, my alma mater. But it's ironic, our paths crossed. We didn't even know when you were at Fullerton. So it's great that we've kind of got to know each other over these years. And I appreciate you having me on. It definitely is interesting, you know, the coaching tree and, you know, how we are uh, affiliated with so many different people that we have our own you know, friendships and have worked with and for, and, and now we're doing this here. So I've been waiting for this one for a while. So I'm really excited to have you. Um, you know, the more college coaches that I interview, or even coaches in general, I've learned that, you know, everyone has their own unique story. Everyone has their own unique way of getting to where they're at now and getting that dream job or that head coaching job. And yours is certainly no different. Uh, you have definitely bounced around to different levels and different, uh, different positions on the bench and really a short amount of time, all things considered. Um, and so with me, and as you mentioned, you know, as, as being a high school basketball coach, I always start these interviews. I want to talk about the high school side first, because that's always important to me to hear about your high school experience and what you learned and so on and so forth. So let's start right from the beginning with that. How did you get into the game and, and what was your high school experience like playing at El Toro? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, backtracking in terms of uh, just how I got into the game, um, it started kind of naturally. My dad was a high school basketball coach, educator. And um, even, you know, I heard stories of when I was a baby, I would go to practice um, and sit in my little, uh, whatever they call a little uh, carrier and, and watch practice. So it started at a young age. And um, that was kind of an influence, started playing at a young age and um, got to high school, obviously, went to El Toro High School, where, where you're the coach uh, now. And um, I wasn't a great player by any means, average at best, um, worked hard, wanted to get better, but kind of always had a mind for coaching. Um, and uh, yeah, I would say like seventh, eighth man, but uh, Coach Dixon uh, was my varsity head coach for two years and, uh, you know, kind of got me rolling into the the coaching career as much as I tried to deny it or push it away early that I was going to get into this career. Um, but yeah, I started young and like I said, I was a hard worker. I'd be those guy, a guy that would get to practice early, leave late, um, just try to maximize my potential. But I would, wouldn't say I was a star by any means, uh, at, at all. Did the stuff that you learned from, uh, coach Dixon in high school, did that help you as you went on uh, in your coaching career? Um, yeah. And ironically enough, uh, so right, literally the day after I graduated high school, I started coaching freshman summer league basketball. So Coach Dixon was actually the one that got me into coaching and um, gave me the first opportunity. And I worked with uh, Tim Travers, 
who was our freshman coach and had been the varsity coach prior to uh, Coach Dixon. And um, I worked with him for four straight summers um, every time I came back from college. And that was kind of my initial jump into coaching, um, was coaching summer league, freshman summer league with Coach Travers. And from him and Coach Dixon, I learned a ton. And um, they set a great foundation for me to to get into coaching and, and, and really encouraged me to pursue my goals of being a college coach and supported me. And when it came time for recommendations and that type of stuff, we're always there. So uh, it was a great, great foundation working in the El Toro High School basketball program starting when I was 18 years old or 17 years old. Now you said you weren't uh, the best of players, but you did play college basketball at Occidental. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about how you, I can assume by what you told me, you may not have been recruited, but can you tell me how you ended up getting on the team and how your career continued? Yeah, you know, I was recruited, but I mean, I think I was one of those guys. I had a high GPA. I played basketball. And at the time, ironically, I had not even thought about playing college basketball. I didn't know what Division three basketball was. And um, going and playing college basketball was the best thing I ever did. I had aspirations of going to the East Coast. I was high academic and um, playing basketball, like I said, wasn't a thought. So the opportunity to go play because I loved the game so much and go to a great school with high academics um, really fit. And Coach Newhall, who was uh, my coach at Occidental and still is the coach there today, um, again, was another guy that has had a tremendous influence in my coaching career. Um, again, I was like the eighth, ninth man, maybe 10th man in, in Occidental, but that was where I really, uh, even though I was lower on the bench, I kind of started to take a coach's role on the team. And, um, I still, you know, coach Newell and I talk a few times a week still. And, uh, he's been a guy that's again, like coach Dixon, coach Travers helped create the foundation of where I am as a coach today. And, um, he pushed me on the floor and some of our assistant coaches, Again, we're just phenomenal people that made me a better basketball player, made me a better coach, made me a better person. And, um, and yeah, at the time, I still wanted to be a doctor, ironically enough, and <laughs> kind of uh, was thinking I'd go take the MCAT and go to med school, and then things kind of got flipped around, and I just stuck with coaching. So, um, But going and playing college basketball, it was an incredible experience at the Division three level for a guy like myself who was never going to be a Division one player. You said uh, you mentioned you were a, like a coach on the bench. Uh, what did that mean? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that, you know, my teammates recognize that a good knowledge for the game. And um, I was a cheerleader. I was the guy that, um, you know, had a great feel for things. And they could come to me if, uh, you know, they would come and ask me questions about plays and things. If, if they were understanding it or things they saw on the court or things I saw on the court. And kind of just took, like I said, uh, just more of a captain leadership coach role on the team. So you, is that when you realized that, you know, that's what you wanted to be was a coach and that's the career you wanted to pursue? Yeah. I still have a shoebox of letters from when I was a senior in college. I sent about 300 letters out to every division one school, um, trying to get any sort of volunteer graduate assistant, um, sort of position. And I have a box of rejection letters from, 349 coaches essentially of uh, of that but um, but yeah that was where it really started and um, just got the itch to go kind of break away and then it was when I started at Long Beach State that the med school dreams officially got pushed to the side. So you so after your playing career ended you realized you wanted to be a coach 
-hmm. and you sent a handwritten letter to every single division one head coach in the country asking for a position to volunteer and to learn from them um, and their program. Is that what I'm understanding? Basically, yeah. And every one of them either said no by not replying or actually sending you something to reply. Is that what happened? Yeah. You got a nice, nice set of autographs. Of there you go. Totally autographs. So, wow, that, that's an interesting story. So yeah. it, you were turned down by every single one, but you did end up at Long Beach State. Yeah. Uh, talk about how you joined that staff. So um, at the time, you know, I was kind of, you know, I was torn between medical school, coaching, graduate school. Um, I knew I wasn't going to go to med school immediately. I was going to need to, you know, finish prepping for the MCAT and doing those things. So I was like, oh, let's go to grad school. That's what most people do, and they don't know what they're going to do with their life. And I applied several places trying to get graduate assistance jobs, and um, I got accepted a couple places, but couldn't really get uh, onto the coaching staff there as I was trying to cipher, cipher through and do the research and talk to people. And at the time, Larry Reynolds had just been hired at the coach at Long Beach State. And uh, I kind of disappeared at his doorstep one day. I had been accepted to grad school there. And I was, I basically, I was able to meet with him and uh, kind of explain my situation and said, hey, I'm going to be going to graduate school, like to get into coaching. Um, I'm, I'll work for free, whatever you need. Um, and he said, we have camp starting on Monday come to camps, work camp, and then we'll see what happens. I'll evaluate you. Um, at the end of the week at camp, he said, I'll see you on Monday. And I showed up and they never kicked me out. So um, that was kind of how it all started, just kind of being persistent and uh, showing up and working hard for those five days and forming relationships with the guys on the team that were working camp and a couple of assistant coaches and um, just proving, proving your worth and that no job, be it picking up the trash, mopping the floor, putting up the rims was too small for me. And um, that's kind of how it started. And on that Monday when I came back, I think uh, my first official job was to go clean the locker room. And again, that was my first job. And like I said, they never kicked me out. They kept, let, kept letting me come back. And uh, that was that's how my coaching career started. It's uh, It's very common. Uh, theme is, is you listen to each of these podcasts of how many coaches uh, work for free and not just for a day or for a week, but for years, many times and uh, working even below minimum wage and, and, uh, and doing all those things. And, and your story is certainly no different. Um, so you step in now, now you are, you have a position or at least the coach knows who you are and expects you to be there yeah. at Long Beach state. What did you notice right away in the difference between division one basketball and the basketball that you were used to <laughs> night and day? Night and day. Um, uh, yeah, just physically how big the guys were. Um, the the level of athleticism, because I was still, you know, thinking I could play basketball at the time. <laughs> and I tried to play with our guys a few times, and that was out of the question real fast. And um, uh, just uh, it was a whole different level of, uh, of buy-in on the player part. And <laughs> don't get me wrong, they were student-athletes. But again, they're on a scholarship and they, you know, I would get calls, you know, pretty that summer and throughout the time, hey, can you come rebound for me? And it's 1130 at night. And just the level that they were playing at was, was very different than what I'd been accustomed to. So you get in with the players and you're kind of that do everything guy. Mm -hmm. You saw the structure of a Division One program. What did you learn from Coach Reynolds and his assistants and how a program was run? at a division one level? 
Well, uh, I think that, you know, being in a Division three program versus a Division one program, I think that it was eye-opening on a daily basis on what, uh, you know, what a Division one program revolves like. And, you know, I never had the opportunity to be at a higher level school through my career like at Duke or high, mid, high major programs. So this is a, like a, just a monumental step um, to be able to see it. Um, and kind of going back, uh, you know, the step between a Duke and a Long Beach State is probably even more mm-hmm. um, was what I was trying to get at there. But, yeah, it was just incredible. And um, to this day, uh, Coach Reynolds, how he ran his program is a lot of how I run my program. Um, and a lot of that's just that initial experience and what type of guy he was. He was very laid back off the court and let his assistants and let us do things and have freedom. And it was just get it done. It wasn't micromanaging. Um, it was get it done. And that's all I care about. At the end of the day, that's kind of what I, one of the big things I've done with my assistants is giving them that freedom to be able to go work, develop, um, and, and find ways to do it on their own and just make sure it's off my plate and that it gets done. Uh, now, what were your roles at Long Beach State? You said you came in and you were kind of the do-everything guy. What, what were your responsibilities once, they got, once you got settled in? Yeah, so for my first two years, I was a graduate assistant. I worked for free. I was basically in the office from 7 a.m. to probably 4 or 5 p.m., depending on the day. And then I would go to grad school classes at night. And it was literally, I had some student loans, and that's how I survived. But that was my my initial buy-in to the program. And I spent a ton of time uh, making sure our guys were on their academics, breaking down film. Those are about the two things I did. Um, I was at practice doing, you know, menial jobs. But those were kind of my uh, my major responsibilities. Then, uh, so those were my first two years at Long Beach. The next two years, I became a director of basketball operations and got more involved with travel and um, starting to pick up some scouts and having a little bit more on the floor responsibilities. And then my fifth year, and that was also like basically a non-paying job. It was like a $10,000 stipend. And then my fifth year, we had a coach leave and I got promoted to a full-time assistant. So it was just a, a five-year process of getting to uh, getting to become an assistant coach. And it was, ironically, we went to the big, we won the big West that year. We went to the NSA tournament. So it was awesome because we inherited a program that had struggled and we struggled our first two years. And for the five-year tenure, we completely turned the program around and won a big West title at the end. So it was awesome to be part of a complete turnaround going, I think five and, 22 our first year to you know 24 and 8 our final year so you had a lot of success you worked there for four years before you finally got enough money to actually pay some bills you became third assistant and then you end up at Cal State Fullerton with coach Burton can you talk about how that happened yeah so um one thing in college athletics as you know and some people may or may not know uh, our last year at Long Beach State uh, we had new president new athletic director and typically that means new whatever basketball or football coach, depending on the school. And they want to bring in their own guys. And even though we went to the NCAA tournament, uh, Coach Reynolds' contract was up and they decided not to renew it. So, uh, you know, 24 and 8 NCAA tournament, we, we were let go. Um, and again, that was the first time in my coaching, first time in my life that really I would have been, I would say, unsuccessful, quote unquote, or felt unsuccessful and just kind of hanging out there. And, uh, during my time at uh, Long Beach State, 
uh, when, when I was a director of operations, uh, I became close friends with Tim Kelly, who was the director of operations at Fullerton. That was an era where uh, pre-digital uh, film, and uh, we actually had to go, if you wanted to exchange film, go meet in a parking lot and exchange VHS tapes. And it was a whole different era. So kids today may not know about what VHS tapes were, but uh, we used to drive her and meet up. And I got to know Tim really well because I think Fullerton and Long Beach were travel partners. And um, uh, he had left Fullerton uh, maybe a year or two earlier. And uh, he called me up and said, hey, Coach Burton's director of basketball operations is leaving. Would you be interested? And I was like, I don't have a job. And uh, he called Coach Burton. Coach Burton called me. And uh, I went and met with him. And uh, that was how it happened. So it had nothing to do with interviewing or applying. It was all about who you know. And that's one theme that's kind of been common in my coaching career is uh, when some things happened, I've been fortunate enough to fall into another job just through my network of people. It's uh, And you learned a, a tough lesson in, in college athletics. Here you made it really to the pinnacle of Big West. If if you compete in the Big West or lower, making it to the NCAA tournament is like winning a national championship. Yes. And you guys made it. And then less than a month later, you're all fired. Yeah, uh, 24 hours that, after the game. 24 hours after the game, they yeah. let you guys go. That that's that's a tough lesson, and only in college athletics really will you see that. Uh, and that's something that you know, as a college coach, you have to always be prepared for, and your assistants yeah. as well. That, yeah. that that's a tough lesson to learn. So you become the ops guy at Fullerton. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about what you learned uh, again from a structural standpoint, from a philosophy standpoint, that you take on now uh, as a coach, at, as a head coach yourself? Yeah, so uh, at Fullerton, uh, when I got the job, the ops job was a volunteer job. So I went from a full-time assistant yeah. being paid to back to a volunteer ops guy. That's the way Fullerton had set it up. And I was that for a year. And then the next five years, I became a full-time assistant uh, following. But uh, Coach Burton, I learned a ton from. Um, Coach Burton is as detailed and prepared and organized a coach as I've ever been around. Um, you could be playing uh, the JC team down the street, Duke. You could be having playing a high school team for all he cared, and it would be the same way how we prepared. And it was detailed, 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 um, and it was awesome. I learned a ton. I took so much from him, his passion. Um, he was very different from Coach Reynolds in his mentality. Um, and how he handled the players. Coach was a little bit more laid back. Coach Burton was way more fiery and aggressive. And um, it was 180 degree difference. And I didn't realize it till I left how good of a coach he made me because he just pushes you, pushes you, pushes you. And it's to the point where you're like, God, I don't like this. But five or six years later, I could look back at myself and say, God, he made me a thousand times better coach. by doing all those things and how he was. So, um, again, it was an incredible experience. My first year there, we were lucky enough to win the Big West and go to the NCAA tournament again. Um, So I was able to go back-to-back years. And then we had, uh, you know, another two 20-win seasons when we were there and had a ton of success um, during that six-year run I was at Fullerton. Well, what were your, as, a, as an assistant coach, once you became an assistant coach, what were your mm-hmm. responsibilities and roles at that, uh, at that time? Yeah, uh, first and foremost, recruiting. Um, mm-hmm. And anybody that wants to get into college coaching that's listening, uh, recruiting is, you know, 
going to be the most important thing you're going to be doing. Uh, obviously, the better players you get, the better coaches you are. And uh, more importantly, you know, the better talent you have, it, the game comes so much easier. And recruiting, you know, be it uh, California, Texas, we were all over the nation recruiting. So uh, that was a really, a, really a great time because at Long Beach, I really only had a chance to recruit for one year. Um, and then going to Fullerton was kind of thrown into it once I became an assistant. And you learn, you know, you learn how, how, to re- how every kid's different who's surrounding them, who you need to recruit in their family, their circle. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, academically, can they make it? Do they want to be close from home? Who's influencing the decision? So it's a really, it's a, it's a puzzle when you recruit. It's not cookie cutter for every single kid. So that was number one, uh, doing scouting reports and getting really in depth. Um, that was kind of about the turn of the digital era in terms of, you know, abusing computers to do scouting and the new soft, all the software came out about that time. Um, and then obviously, um, and this was at Long Beach too, uh, just having a rapport with the players. Um, as an assistant coach, and I learned this now that I'm a head coach, the relationship between an assistant coach and players and head coach and the players is very different. Mm-hmm. And as an assistant coach, you know, I think Coach Burton did a great job with this. He goes, let me be the bad guy and you guys are the ones that are always there to coach, coach, keep them, keep them up and I'll be the one. And so you form really close relationships with the guys and you're trying to get them better and be at extra shots in the morning at night, doing film with them, having lunch with them, just keeping them positive, doing all those things, you know, being a sec- essentially a second father to them. Um, and, and that was a huge, huge step I took in doing all those things at that time. But, those are probably the three biggest things at Fullerton that I was uh, involved with. So you're there for five years, and then you end up taking the associate head coach job at Pomona Pitzer, mm-hmm. a completely different university from the two you were at. We're yeah. talking Division Three, and Pomona Pitzer is a very high academic university. Talk yeah. about that transition from Division One to Division Three, and from a school like the Cal States and a school like Pomona Pitzer. Yeah. Um, so again, at the end of our uh, tenure at Fullerton, contract didn't get renewed. Um, new athletic director, new president, kind of similar theme. And uh, again, I was kind of out looking for jobs and didn't find anything. And um, the Division One, it kind of taken its toll on me uh, for twelve years, eleven years at that point in time. And um, I wanted to kind of get back and find who I was. And Division Three basketball is what I played. Um, high academic. Uh, was what I was and uh, again kind of just fell into my lap this position Pomona Pitzer was a school in Occidentals League so I got to know Coach Katz the head coach there when I played um, a little bit and when the job was posted I called Coach Newell my coach asked his blessing if I could go out to the opposite side because they were one of our rivals and um, uh, he called over to Coach Katz and a couple days later I had an interview and that was it he got hired. So now you're an associate head coach at a division three school. And I can assume that the roles uh, maybe even be expanded because of the resources that a Pomona Pitzer might have. Walk me through your day as the associate head coach, an average day as associate head coach at uh, Pomona Pitzer. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing is it's so different. Um, The high academic model that Pomona Pitzer had um, really in division three rules, um, we're very different from division one. So division three 
from October 15th to the last game of the season is the only time you can work your guys out. So there's no off-season practice in Division Three nationwide. It's NCAA rule. Uh, so during the off-season, it's all about, you know, recruiting and trying to find high academic guys because the school is so hard to get into. You have to really dig and dig. So it was a lot of time on the phone, um, a lot more personal relationships, getting to know our guys since you can't be on the floor with them. Um, so the off-season was a little bit of a challenge because it's not just go, go, go like it had been in the past, which was a little bit difficult for me because I was just used to constantly being around and working guys out. Um, but during the season, you know, our guys went to class and you didn't have to worry about any of their academics. They, these guys, you know, some of the guys I coached, one guy is now a, uh, a climate control specialist in Washington, D.C., a couple doctors. Um, so, again, they were very high-level students, so there was never an academic worry. Um, bigger thing was, uh, uh, you know, just preparing for the games, making sure that they were mentally sound to go to practice every day with pushing the academics behind and preparing for games. When you're working with kids uh, who have uh, an ap- academic workload that's different from other colleges, is your approach different from how you coach them or the pressure that you try to, or that you put on them as a player, or is it everything the same throughout the universities? Um, that's a great question. And uh, um, that's a really good question. And no, I would say when you coach them the same, I think it was a very different coaching experience though. Because I thought the one thing about our Pomona Pitzer guys is that they were so sharp um, that there wasn't a lot of repetition needed. Like you could tell them something and they would remember it. Um, and, and I think that we took maybe, I, I don't want to say, uh, uh, took that for granted at times and we wouldn't do as many reps as we thought um, we needed just because they caught on so quick. But that would be probably the biggest, biggest thing. Um, is just the lack of reps and the, the difference of time. Um, Division one, we were practicing two and a half, three hours. Because of the high academic school, we were literally in and out in about an hour 45 to two hours. So wow. you had to condense a lot more um, into a shorter period of time. So you, again, you bouncing around a little bit more. You end up at Dartmouth University after, and you end up making that East Coast trip out to New Hampshire talk about how you got on at Dartmouth and then the difference in culture between the West coast and the East coast. That is a huge difference. Um, and especially for a guy that at that point in time, had spent 35 years in shorts in December and mm-hmm. all of a sudden having to find a winter coat and boots and snow for five months. Uh, that was a huge transition just personally for me. And at that time, my wife, we had both been in Southern, well, she's from Texas, but had been in Southern California for a lot of years by that point in time. And um, uh, uh, so, yeah, it was a huge transition. Um, How I ended up getting the job, again, just fortunate um, uh, at the time, backtracked one of my years at uh, my last year at Pomona Pitzer, I'd gone out to uh, the East Coast to recruit. And to go out there, I, I paid my own dollar, actually, because we didn't have a recruiting budget. So I went to see some kids and was going to make it a professional development trip because I'd started to get to know some coaches on the East coast. So I went and watched Harvard practice, Boston college practice, and just kind of make some, make it good for me uh, to learn more and expand my network of coaches and just learn a little bit while I was out recruiting. 
And one day I was supposed to go see a kid and the practice got canceled. And I was in downtown Boston and I just happened to know that I was near Northeastern University. And the year before they'd been in the NCAA tournament and randomly picked up the phone and called uh, to see if they were practicing that day. We talked to their director of basketball operations. He said, yep, we're going to practice. See you at noon. I showed up and I happened to meet their associate head coach, Dave McLaughlin there and uh, talked with him for a few minutes at practice that day, watched him practice, did my business, finished my recruiting trip, went back to California and I tried to, tried to stay in touch with him like I did all the coaches I met. Um, and at the end of that year, he actually was the one that got the Dartmouth job. And my head coach at Pomona Pitzer was very close with his mentor. And because I had met him for 15 minutes and tried to stay in touch with him, that kind of helped me uh, get the get the director of basketball operations job at Dartmouth. So you talked about the culture, obviously the weather and the, you know, the city life versus Southern California. Um, was there a difference in the basketball players, like the culture of the way the game is played, the way the game is taught, than what we're used to out here on the West Coast? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think it was a little bit more conservative basketball compared to the West Coast. Um, I thought it was more fundamentally sound <clears throat> versus more like there was never a time when I was at Dartmouth, and this was four years ago, where anybody was doing the dribble drive. Mm-hmm. I think that was, you know, more, I guess you can consider it more open basketball. I thought more, everything was a little bit more controlled, motion oriented or Princeton offense oriented. I'm not trying to stereotype it just from my one year and a half out there of what I saw, but it seemed like there was more like just conservative, more fundamentals, um, very di- different, different basketball culture though, compared to the West coast. That's for sure. Um, were your uh, roles and responsibilities the same or different at this new university that you've been used to? So, you know, it was, you know, if you were to go by position, you know, I had to take technically take a step backwards to being the director of basketball operations. So I couldn't, uh, NCAA rules don't allow that position to recruit. Um, but one of the caveats of the job, which helped me get it, was I'd been on the West Coast and I had a great feel for the players on the West Coast. And the Ivy League schools are traditionally recruiting on the West Coast. So I had a good feel for guys that we needed to be looking at. And I'd been at a high academic school at Pomona. So um, knew, knew how that would uh, help potentially help them. But what I told Coach McLaughlin in my interview was, you know, I've been coaching for 15 years um, as a director of basketball operations, which was going to be the position I would have. Um, I've done everything that you will ever need to do for a basketball program. I've been a director of basketball operations. I've been an assistant coach. So I've been hands-on on everything. So as your first year as a head coach, I can help you do all those things so you can focus on basketball and recruiting. And I can deal with the travel. I can deal with the administration because those are all things I've done and camps and everything like that. And I'll take that all off your plate and you can coach and recruit. And I think that was of huge value to him as a first-time head coach, trying to get his feet wet and build his program the right way that he didn't have to worry a lot about um, those odds and ends type of things or uh, meals on the road or was the bus be there on time for travel or flights or anything like that. So that was a huge advantage for me to get that job. And uh, again, working for Dave McLaughlin was an incredible learning experience, just a basketball uh, 
I would, I'm not going to say genius, but darn close to it. The way his mind thought all the time and um, just loved, loved my time at Dartmouth. And we had great assistant coaches that I got to work and learn from. And it again was another step in, in just making me a coach and, and making me the coach that I am today. And I learned so much. And from a basketball side, a lot of the things that we're trying to do now at Academy of Art came from uh, Coach McLaughlin in my time at Dartmouth. So uh, you were there, you say you were there for a year and a half, enjoyed your time there at the East Coast yeah. of Dartmouth. Dartmouth. Uh, where did you go after that? So uh, I, my next step was I, uh, when I started at Long Beach State, uh, my roommate and office mate was Booker Harris. And we had both been volunteering at Long Beach State together our first year. And he had become the head coach at Dominican University back in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he had initially got the job about in 2011, he had offered me the assistance job. And I just wasn't sure if I was ready to make that move and wasn't sure how it would affect our friendship. Um, so I, I declined the first time and his assistant left in 2017 and he called me up and said, uh, you want the job. And if you'd spent one winter in New Hampshire after being a California kid for 35 years, it was, it was about time. I saw more snow and mm-hmm. six months than I'd seen in 10 lifetimes. And <laughs> in May when it, the sky was still snowing and it was like, Oh, get us out of here. So um, it was this time. And I wanted to get back to coaching and being on the floor again, something you couldn't do as a director of basketball operations. And it was a tough decision uh, to leave Dartmouth just because it's an incredible place, um, Ivy League, the kids there. But again, it took, you know, just me wanting to get back into being a coach, being out on the floor daily, recruiting, all those things, uh, one back over and picked up after 18 months and moved all the way back to the West Coast. So now you're at Dominican. Um, now you are an assistant coach uh-huh. uh, again, uh, back out on the floor, back out recruiting. You got your hands in everything. Uh, are your roles, are you better now in your roles and more refined because you've been so many different places and are you able to hit the ground running and be a better yeah. coach than you were before? Yeah, without question. And I think the uh, the one thing, and, and you know, because you worked with Coach Burton and Coach Katz and Coach McLaughlin, they were great to learn from, but they were all very, very hands-on on the team. And the assistants, we had specific roles, don't get me wrong, but uh, Booker, uh, gave me a ton of responsibility and actually let me get out on the floor and coach and be more, much more present. And, you know, when you're at the division one level, there's, you know, head coach, three assistant coaches and other people. So there's a lot, a lot of voices, but it was just me and Booker coaching. So, uh, I finally got a real chance to get out there and coach and learn, uh, you know, you do it. And then it's just different when, again, when you take that next step and there's more responsibility put on you and, he gave me that responsibility. He gave me that chance and uh, can't thank him enough for it. And uh, it was a great decision to come back just because I learned much more about myself as a coach and was able to take things from all the previous places that I've worked and kind of help, help him and build his program. One, the, the one thing I think as I look at you and I've known you over the years that you're known for off the court is that the teams that you're on, have uh, have huge academic successes. Uh, they have a certain level that they're at, and then you go on the team and that bar raises, and it's done it consistently with every single school you've been at. And, and much so at, at Dominican University, uh, you guys won the National Association of Basketball Coaches Team Academic Excellence Award. It might be the longest title for an award I've ever heard. 
but you guys won that and you are known personally for players and great academics. Share with us how you motivate college athletes to do well in class and some of the strategies that you have to help basketball players. Yeah, I think uh, uh, there's a couple, a couple of ways you can go about that. First, um, you know, my parents were both educators and it was preached on me at a very, very young age, you know, the importance of academics. And then when I got to Long Beach and Fullerton, a lot of the kids that we had were, um, weren't privileged academically. They came from poor environments or were academically weren't the best students. And uh, I, would, I know at Fullerton, it was 21 and 22 guys ended up graduating. And at Long Beach State, it was, I don't know the exact number, but most of them graduated as well, especially the last two years when we were really good. And I think the, the thing is, I learned, really learned you have to preach to them that the ball is going to stop bouncing at some point in their life. Maybe the day they graduate and they may be able to play for one year, two years, 10 years, whatever it is, but eventually you're going to have to have a job. And I think what really was able to help all those guys is I would always tell them, don't let your academics be more important to me than it is to you because eventually you're going to need it. And I think initially there was a lot of resistance and we walked guys to class and had study hall all hours of the day and night. And there'd be mornings where I'd have, four or five guys waiting for me at 6.30 in the morning so we can make sure their work was done, they were doing study hall, all those things. Like I was, I was on them day and night. And it finally, uh, doing all those things and just showing how much you care for them and showing them how important academics is uh, was, was really important in that. And, you know, then having to go to Pomona, Pitzer, and Dartmouth where uh, you're with high academic kids and all of a sudden I kind of lost that academic edge because I didn't have to do too much I didn't even know if our guys went to class they were so smart and just doing everything and then when we got back to Dominican again it's a it's a fairly academic school so we had some pretty smart guys but again we had full academic monitoring meeting with them all the time about what they needed to do in their classes and just it's just the showing how much you care and showing how important it is to you I think is what really uh inspires those kids um, when they know that someone else is there to support them through it. So you were there Dominican and now you finally accepted your first head coaching job in college or even ever uh, at uh, the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. Talk mm-hmm. about how you got hired and how you were able to get put on there at Academy of Art. Yeah. Um, again, just kind of, again, a story of who, you know, um, uh, at least to start, um, I, I knew the compliance officer, Dan Emerson, from when he was, uh, he was actually a coach. So we got to know each other pretty well. Um, and it's we're still very, you know, close throughout uh, the years. And then the athletic director, Brad Jones, um, back in 2011, I had met him by fluke um, uh, working uh, at a, the West Regional in Anaheim. He was working for the WAC conference. I was at Fullerton and he volunteered just to work the regional so I could kind of get behind the scenes of it was a regional when there was San Diego state with Kawhi Leonard, uh, Connecticut with Kemba Walker, Duke had uh, Kyrie Irving and Arizona had, uh, uh, I can't think of his name. Uh, Derek Williams. Derek Williams. Yes. So they were there and I was like, this is a great opportunity. I can be behind the scenes, get to see those teams be down on the floor. And, uh, Brad was actually, uh, the guy I worked with. Um, so I got to just know him and that kind of helped, uh, 
you know, at least get an initial knowledge of who I was, even though we really, we didn't talk for the eight years in between that and um, when I got hired at Academy of Art, but he was close with the Dominican AD and I'd done, you know, good work at Dominican. And uh, when the time came for the job to open up, he had called around and was looking for people. And uh, Amy Hingleman, at, uh, the AD at uh, Dominican recommended me. And that's just kind of what got the ball rolling. So you get hired there. You had been an assistant coach for well, how many years? 17 years? Is that what my count? Yeah, I've been in college coaching for 17 years. 17 years as a, at, in college in one role or another. Now yeah. you're finally in the head chair. Yeah. What were your first, you know, your first month or two on the job? What were the most important things that you had to get done to establish your program? Yeah, talk about light years difference. Um, and we can maybe talk about that at the end. But um, the first thing I did was uh, had a team meeting and I set up individual meetings with every guy on the team. I wanted to get to know them. And those meetings weren't about basketball. It was about what are you studying? What are your family like? Um, and just starting to build a rapport with them because that's at the end of the day, what it's all about. It's about the player coach relationship. And that's what I, I build my personal coaching philosophy around is that relationship. So um, I got the job and that was like priority. Number one was to meet the returners, get to know them, um, feel out what, what they wanted in the program. There had been a coaching change. There's a reason why, what, what needed to change? How could I help? What, get their feedback and like I tell them to this day it's a democratic authority they have a voice I have the final say a lot of the time so I wanted their feedback to see how I could best help them and, and suit their needs um, so that was start number one uh, start number uh, point number two was recruit we had five scholarships available and division two it's different than division one you can't uh, you can't split them up division one it's one scholarship per one person but division two, we can split them up and we needed some firepower, some manpower for the program. So it was hitting the floor recruiting. Uh, then three would be hired was hiring my staff. Um, and I wanted guys that were loyal, that knew the game. And more importantly, were like me, they were uh, all about the players. They cared about them. They were genuine. Um, and I got two great, uh, great young assistants, DJ Broom and Clint Tremelli and uh, the other thing I was looking for is I wanted guys that want to be head coaches and both those guys aspire to be head coaches and uh, really, you know, jumped right in and helped um, when, uh, you know, when they officially got on board. And then the fourth thing it was getting to know the school, getting to know the administration, learning everything, um, you know, of how the athletic department runs because you've been five, six different places and everybody does things differently, be it compliance paperwork, staff meetings, um, you name it. So it's, it's, uh, it was just a, it's a learning process. And I would, it was a nonstop. I mean, I would be there at six in the morning and leave at eight o'clock at night and still walk out with a list of like, what did I do today? And this is because it would pile on with 10 more things. And it was, you know, the balance between, uh, balance between, you know, friends calling and congratulating you or coaches calling and I've got a player or, just you know who you hiring do you need an assistant so it's a it's a major balance of just trying to uh, find the right balance of what needs to be done every day and prioritizing so let's talk about a couple of those points the first point was building relationships with the players now you just finished your first full season mm -hmm. so those things do take time but what are some strategies you have and you mentioned it before the most important thing is player coach relationship 
what are some things that you do that have worked for you that help you build that strong relationship with your guys? Yeah. Um, the biggest thing, I think it was great was I would go to lunch or breakfast or dinner uh, with those guys at cafeteria off campus. Um, and so that was one, just get them in a non-basketball environment where you can talk about nothing basketball related or basketball if they wanted to bring it up, but try to avoid that. Um, secondly, I would walk to class with them. Our school is a little different because we're located, you know, in the city of San Francisco. So our campus is the city. There's, you walk from the dorms to some of the academic buildings, you're walking through Union Square and all the tourist sites. So I would walk with them to class and just spend 15 minutes with them walking and talking again. Hey, what class you got now? What's going on in there? How you doing? You know, just it, playing catch up, uh, like mm -hmm. in that way. Um, third thing, like a lot of individual film, you know, calling them in during the season after practice saying, hey, you have 10 minutes. Here's five clips of you. Great job on this. We need to get better here. So um, those are the things. It's, again, just showing how much you care. You talked about recruiting was your second part. You had recruited at the Division One level, uh, Division One players and, and prospective professional players. Many of those guys go on to play to uh, Ivy League players, to D3 players, and now here at D2. What do you look for in a recruit when you're out evaluating players? Um, obviously, first and foremost, uh, how their talent level is going to fit in. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be 1A, and then 1B is their personality and their characteristics. Um, are they going to be a team, great teammate, great team player? Huge. Um, how, do, how do they warm up? Are they too cool, or are they going through it going hard? Um, something's going great. How do they respond to the coach? Something's going bad. How do they respond to the coach? How do they respond to their teammate? Um, a lot of the intangibles and when it comes down, when talent's equal and the intangibles are one way or the other, you want the better intangibles. So that's really, really important. Um, then you obviously have to factor in the academic side. Um, yeah. you got to make sure that they meet NCAA school requirements. So getting those transcripts early is really important. And then doing your research, um, you know, it's not without question that you're not, you'll call kids high school coach, their AAU coach, you'll talk with their parents, but you also may call a teammate. You also may call an opposing AAU coach or a player that they've played against. Or if you know someone that knew them, you know, eight degrees of separation in basketball, you call and say, what's this person like? So if I'm going to invest money and put you on scholarship, then I got to make sure that the return I'm getting is the right return. And uh, be honest sometimes you get fooled and you miss it's it happens but you have to do your research and feel comfortable with the decision because not you you know you can't coach everybody the way you want to coach them sometimes and if that's not going to be a good fit then it, it's not just not good for you as a coach in the program but it's not good for the, uh, the player and as a student athlete they want the best experience and sometimes um, identifying that early is the best thing because you know that it's not going to work and they can go their different direction and you can go your different direction and in part ways. And I think that's just as important as being able to identify, you know, sometimes, sometimes the best thing is being able to take someone off your list for maybe they're not good enough or just the personalities don't mix or, or clash the right way. So sometimes the best recruiting is being able to eliminate versus find. Um, you talk about, you got a, a couple of good young coaches in there with you. Uh, guys who remind you of yourself in different ways. Um, what are you 
what are you, what, what kind of responsibility and roles do you give your assistant coaches? You being an assistant coach much longer than you've been a head coach, you certainly know their point of view. How do you work with them and get the most out of them each day with the players? Yeah, that's, that's a great thing. And again, I, I, like I mentioned earlier, I want to give them a lot of freedom. So on a practice plan, I may say, uh, you know, DJ, you have the offense, Clint, you have the defense. I'm going to watch everything and let them coach. And then at the end, you know, I'll chime in when I see things, but I want to give them as much say and freedom as possible. And when we do like position breakdowns, I'll say, DJ, you have the guards today. Clint, you have the big guys today. Go work with them. You guys create your own agendas. You be the head coach and I'll watch and try not to step in and shut up and sit on the side, you know, and, and evaluate and put things together. So I want to give my assistant coaches as much, as much freedom as they can uh, uh, to go and be a head coach in that own area, be it, you know, recruiting that day or uh, film breakdown. They do all the scouts. Um, and again, I kind of give them some broad framework, but I want them to go do it and put it together and um, come back and present to the team. And then I'll, I'll chime in when necessary, but they're the head coaches and, we meet a lot, so they know what my expectations are and they know what um, what to do, but I give them the freedom to go do it, and they've done a phenomenal job of getting it done. And, um, you know, like I said, I don't want to be the overbearing overbearing micromanager. I just want them to be able to, to do things so uh, they feel free and, and relaxed to go do it the, their way and um, learn as well. So what's the biggest difference between being a head coach and being an assistant? Yeah, this is this was huge for me. And it's you move over eighteen inches, and it's moving over light years. Um, the the big the couple of things was as an assistant coach, it was great. You have all the answers. You can always throw out you know information. Throw out we need to recruit this guy. Or we need to run this play. Um, and at the end of the day, there's no repercussions on you. You know, obviously the head coach takes your advice and and processes it and makes his decision so at the end of the day I go you know I can go hey I did my job I provided the information and then it's on him now all of a sudden as a head coach it's the opposite you're taking in all the information and now you have to make that decision be it do we want to offer this guy a scholarship do we want to run this play out of a timeout do we want to go from man to zone how's this going to affect our team do I need to make this sub and all these decisions all of a sudden start going through your head so it's, it's a very daunting task. Um, and, and also you are the official leader of the program. Um, you know, as assistant coach, you're there to support your head coach, be there with the guys. And now again, 50% of my day is in basketball. It's, you know, administrative things doing, making sure I'm doing the right things for the department, representing the program in the right way. Uh, you know, being, you know, present with recruits, dealing with academic issues. So it's not just basketball all the time. There's so many other responsibilities. Now you're now as the head coach, you are responsible for the offensive and defensive schemes and philosophy. Um, how did your offense and defense philosophy develop? And did, were you able to take from all the different places that you've been and kind of mold that all together? Or was it one place or was it a video or how did you come up with your offense and defensive philosophy? Yeah, you take 17 years and you pick and choose things and you put it all together. That's exactly what it was. Um, you take a little bit of Long Beach, Larry Reynolds, a little bit of Bob Burton, a little bit of Charlie Katsiafikas, a little bit of Dave McLaughlin, a little bit of Booker Harris, and you go throw it all together and that's what we are. 
and um, I couldn't ask for it any other way. It works, and that's what I feel most comfortable with. I think, you know, a lot of times, and I've tried it as an assistant coach. I've tried it this year as a head coach. You see something on film. Uh, you see something on, uh, you know, on TV uh, or a clinic, and it works for somebody else. And you go, oh, crap, that's great. you got to go try that. And there's typically a reason why other teams are successful for it, be it some little details that they don't talk about or you don't know or players. And it's very hard to go take something like that and implement a whole system. And that's what, uh, you know, I love clinics. I love those basketball videos, but I have to be really careful just to pick and choose small things to take versus, Oh my God, this is a great concept or that's a great play. And then you get out there and it doesn't work. And you're like, well, why does it work for Jay Wright? Well, Mm-hmm. Jay Wright knows knows exactly what he's looking for. He has the players to do it, and that's why it works for him. So that's why I was able to take what I was most comfortable with and mold it to our personnel. And even that was a was a learning experience for me this year because there were some things that I did that I thought were going to be great with our team, and it took a lot more practice and a lot more development, and we had to kind of shift away from it to do something else that was going to fit the personnel that we had better. So one of the things that we're doing right now is recruiting to more of what I want to do versus, um, you know, kind of force feed uh, like we had in some of the guys that were returning that played a different style. I think what I'm hearing is you're trying to shape the players um, to your philosophy, even how you recruit the type of player that you want, who could do the things on the floor that best suits your style. And as an assistant coach, one of the main jobs of an assistant coach is, is, is uh, player development and skill development. Yeah. How do you how do you appropriate the time for your skill development? And do you do it? I think I'm hearing you do it towards your style. And how much say do you have in, in that skill development? How much time do you give to it? Yeah, uh, I think there's a combination. There's this the basic fundamentals that we do. And we spend probably 20 minutes every day in practice beginning and uh, doing some sort of skill development. Some days it may just be as simple as two ball dribbling, basic post moves. Some days it may be more broken down based on our offensive concepts, how we come off a ball screen or a specific, if we're putting in a set play, breaking that down. So uh, the guards may be doing a cross screen into a down screen um, or the bigs may be working on screening and slipping just more based on, you know, offensive sets. So we can do it both ways. And yeah, we all, me and my assistants, you know, have all a lot of say in that. And we spend a lot of time actually after practice as well, doing that skill development stuff, getting a lot of shots, um, getting guys on the gun, getting guys in the gym. Um, Just, you know, even for 20 minutes is getting them going hard for 20 minutes. You can get a lot done. A couple more questions here and I'll let you do coach. Professional development. uh, We touched a little bit on that. What are some ways that you uh, make yourself better as a coach, be it websites or clinics or books, et cetera? What are some yeah. ways you develop professionally? Yeah, I, you know, I enjoy podcasts. I'm a big exercise guy, so that gets me through a lot of runs. Um, reading, you know, I read a lot of books, coaching, motivational books. And again, I'm not trying to take any specific philosophy, but I'm just always intrigued by uh, how other coaches do things. And if even it's just one little line I can take from it, um, and translate to my program or one little concept that's worth the 300 or 400 page reading. Um, I love watching film. I'll go, especially during this quarantine time and, uh, you know, throw on, uh, you know, 2018 Villanova for no reason other than to see what Jay Wright does and just kind of, you know, just 
grow as a coach and see how other teams do things and, you know, learn. So, yeah, it's, it's an important part of the job. And, you know, I've gone to clinics. I've uh, enjoyed listening to, you know, other coaches talk about their systems. I've, again, quarantined, been on some other Zoom calls where we all talk about how we do things. So um, it's a never n- nonstop growth process. Last question here. Advice for coaches. Um, what advice do you have for guys or gals who uh, want to be a head coach like you one day? Um, I think first and foremost, well, several things, but first and foremost, be ready to sacrifice. Uh, make sure that you are a hundred percent passionate about what you're doing. It, it could be coaching, could be anything for anybody else who's listening to this, but find what you're passionate about and go do it and don't let anybody else say uh, no. And, you know, plenty of times when, you know, I said I wanted to be a head coach, um, people kind of said, good luck. It's really hard. And after 17 years, it, it fell into place. And there were times, don't get me wrong, when I was in between jobs or nights sitting up thinking, how am I ever going to become a head coach? Is this ever going to happen? But you can't stop. You have to be persistent. Um, having a great support system, my wife, my parents have always been there, my friends who understand what I was all about. Um, not having those energy vampires that are, you know, taking away the, the bad mojo from you. Um, so those, that's really important, but you can't, you have to be persistent. You have to go after it 100%. Uh, secondly, like you said, professional development um, and networking is incredible. Like I said, in each of those situations, I didn't get the job, get those jobs because of, you know, being able to be a great recruiter or a great X and O coach. It was all about who I knew. And I was lucky enough for those relationships and connections for things to fall into place. And uh, thirdly, uh, you cannot go in with a closed mind, be it as a basketball coach or doctor or whatever. You have to go in with the, be ready to learn. And the hardest thing is sometimes as an assistant coach is, you know, your head coach may have a completely different philosophy than you. And you can't, you have to support them hundred percent. And even if it's not what you agree with, that's how it's going to operate because if anybody in that program is off players realize it it's not going to work how can uh, our viewers reach you coach if they want to ask some questions or get to know you or stop by when they're in town yeah without question um you can contact me via email uh s waterman at academyart.edu um i'll I don't Can I get my cell phone? I don't know how that works. I mean, it's your cell phone. Yeah. 949-400-3426. Please, you know, reach out at any time. Would love to to talk and help any young coaches as they go through this process and um, yeah, share my experiences. That's the type of guy I am. I want to want to help as much as I can. Well, very good coach. Uh, we will be rooting uh, for the Academy of Art University Uh, men's team this year and keeping a close eye on you as you continue to improve that program. Thank you very much, coach, for being here. No problem, Nick. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate the time and more importantly, go Chargers. (laughs) That's right. Well, that does it for the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at nicksinato at ymail.com. See you next time.